Hello and welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand from Luminary. This is a very special week because for the next two episodes, I'll be talking to Adam Curtis. Adam Curtis is a documentary filmmaker. He's been on Under the Skin before. I think he was one of the first guests, maybe the first. Was he? Uh, uh, oh. oh, he might be. You know. The very first. Yeah, I think so. Um, in his films, he explores areas of sociology, psychology, although you know, we have a big argument about that, <laughs> philosophy and political history. His latest documentary, Can't Get You Out of My Head, An Emotional History of the Modern World, is a six-part series that you can watch on the BBC, on like iPlayer, right? Is mm-hmm. it on the telly as well? This is part one of our conversation. Part two will be next week, and I'll be looking forward to hearing your comments and thoughts. Adam has been a big... Um, uh, he's an important person in my life, Adam Curtis. He's been affecting my perspectives for a long while from when I first saw Century of the Self, How and Nightmares. I love all, I watch all these films and I've become friends with him. And he's a curious and brilliant man. What are you thinking, Jen? It's just funny conversation. What? That's <laughs> funny conversation. Why? I just like that he is, is dismissive. You like that, do you? <laughs> you like how he's dismissive. <laughs> like you try and... Do something and then he'll just move on. Or be kind of mean, like the HR department. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you like. (laughs) I think it's an interesting trait. You like that he's horrible to me. That's what you like. not horrible to you. Just it's an interesting dynamic. (laughs) Jen, I'm going to have a real eye on you over the coming weeks after a remark like that. That's sadism, what you just expressed there. Yeah, but like... Psychological sadism. Or like when someone slips on a banana peel. Do you like that? Schadenfreude. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Not necessarily the banana. You still just said a headache, banana peel. <laughs> but if something really on you, yeah, maybe I do, yeah. You, are, you can be a vicious wee freak, Jenny <laughs> Mayfin. Mrs. Reed, talking about our podcast last week with Philippa Perry, uh, Mrs. Reed says, I love Philippa. Her new book has honestly changed my life. Well, she changed my life as well. She was a very beautiful communicator and a really lovely person. I enjoyed talking to her enormously if you haven't listened to that episode with Philippa Perry or got a book you know do both of those things if um, that's what you were into Robin Reiser says another way our past wounds distort our parenting is being so committed to not want to inflict pain done to us that we go the other extreme and indulge them oh, yes I hear you queen that's what I've been doing we are not our parents yet we project the sadness our parents caused us onto them they aren't feeling what we felt at our age it's safe for them in our own projection of what they're feeling, we over-soothe. So they don't learn... Did you find the word soothe interesting there, Jen? Or did you use it the I thought it was a very nice way to put it. They over-soothe. Yeah, who's someone who says soothe? You need over-soothing. Why? <laughs> Look at you, you're wretched. You're scrambling about. You're scratching at yourself. You're wretched. Um, <laughs> so they don't learn to regulate everyday up and downs. You're right. Sharon Stone says... Okay, that's right on. Can we hear more from her? Yeah, all right. Mike Avery, so love your podcast. Thank you for lighting the load for us listeners. Suggesting a full episode with your team member, Jenny Mayfield. <laughs> Jenny, did you make this up? No. Jenny, I'd like to see this account verified of Mike Avery. I don't believe there is a Mike Avery. There is. Suggesting a full episode with your team member, Jelly May Fink, because I can listen to her talk and giggle all day. Maybe have a read the phone book or something. Thanks in advance. Mike, unless you've got a very chiseled chin like Luminary Steve, you are... You've got no chance, mate. 
She likes a chisel draw. He's folding his arms in his profile picture. You've, Mike, you're folding your arms in your profile picture. Open up, Mike. <laughs> if you want to win the heart of Jenny Mae Finn, you've got to open up. Is that right? I don't think it's a pitch to win my heart. He just wants to talk to you more. No, he wants to hear me more. That's weird. But look at, <laughs> but as if to counterbalance that, look at this one from Dusty Phillips. <laughs> Who is that ridiculous Irish woman that you have on your show? I find her constant interjections pointless and annoying. Pointless. And particularly the thing she just said just now about enjoying it when Adam Curtis is mean to you is very offensive. If you're wondering how I heard that, it's because I got an advanced copy of the tapes and listened to it in the car. Lots of love and respect to you, by the way, Russell. You're one of the best there's ever been. Love, what did I say his name was? Mike. Dusty Phillips. Dusty Phillips. <laughs> Dusty. Thank you, Dusty. Mike is my guy. <laughs> Fan number two. <laughs> yeah, well, at least Dusty Phillips is real. Unlike Mike, who I feel suspicion is absolutely made up. Anyway, if you want to ask me anything, you can ask me anything on a new podcast where you interview me. We'd love to hear from you. To get involved, simply go over to russellbrand.com forward slash ask me anything and record a voice message using your mouth, face, noises and say the question then. Jen, if you say about that moustache, I'm not sure if my children... To... All right, what question could they ask? I, um, do you think about <laughs> death when you're falling asleep? <laughs> do you think about death when you're falling asleep? That's yeah. your suggestion for a question. Do you think about death when not, you're falling Not anymore. I train myself not to. <laughs> when you say you thought... Do you, what, death, death methods? Death not styles like of the death? the inevitability. Yeah, the inevitability. It stalks you, doesn't it? Oh, it stalks you. But what we've got to think, this is what I was trying to explain to the Adam Curtis in today's podcast. If you embrace the religious life, you find an aspect of the self transcendent of the individual identity and are liberated thusly. He won't bloody listen, will he? He just won't listen. Although he will talk. And my God, what a talker he is and what a man. So let's get over to that now. Uh, join my community at russellbrand.com where you'll receive unique opportunities. Like I'm going to do some... Uh, like techniques, I'm going to do like Zoom calls, right? I'll send you a free code and we'll do very intimate Zoom calls. I don't know, 500 people, thousands, I don't know what they'll be. But you'll be able to join it and, uh, you know, we'll do a meditation on there. Meditations and breathing techniques and mental health, uh, you know, just banging on about it, really. So listen, go over to russellbrand.com and um, subscribe to my community and watch my YouTube channel. We're getting some good videos out at the moment. If you, uh, you want to follow me on TikTok, or Instagram or LinkedIn is Russell Brand. On Twitter, it's at Rusty Rockets. Now, let's get on with Adam Curtis now and get some real revolutionary insight to a man who's always had a radical perspective, a rigorous and entertaining way of telling stories that are both simple uh, yet, um, what do I want to say, sort of bewitching and complex, but easy to understand. How would you describe him, Django? Um, I don't know. He's very calm, calm. rational. He's calm. <laughs> it is calm. A man is very calm and <laughs> rational. And, but also mysterious. Calm and rational, mysterious, Jenny. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, let's listen to the calm, rational, mysterious Adam Curtis on Under the Skin. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. All right, Adam, thank you very much for coming on Under the Skin. Pleasure. You're here to talk about your new film, 
Can't get you out of my head. The subtitle, An Emotional History of the Modern World. It comes out on the 11th of February. It's a six-part series. And uh, I, I saw it a little while ago. Does it, has it changed much? I mean, lots of bits of it have changed. But in essence, no. It's still a sort of full of lots of different characters across the world over the last what, 70 years. As I recall, you selected a few protagonists in like Russia, China, Great Britain, the United States. And now I see from your subtitle in order to tell an emotional history of the modern world is how does it sort of compare to Bitter Lake or hypernormalization? some of your more recent um, BBC films? Is it, did you, was it different for you making it? It, it? it is a bit different. I mean, because what I wanted to do I mean, there are two reasons why it's like it, it is. One is because I wanted to do something that was more driven by the characters than just by the ideas. I mean, the last thing I did, hypernormalization, was very much focusing on arguments and ideas. And this is still about arguments and ideas, but it's done through something that's always rather interested me, which is what happens to ideas about how to change the world or how to reshape the world when they actually get inside people's heads what then comes out they tend to you know it inside people's heads is not just a neutral ground it's full of their past their experiences their memories their feelings and and ideas especially ideas drawn from power when they get mixed up with that i think that's very interesting and especially in the age of the individual which is a thing we've talked about in the past that we're driven by the idea that our feelings are very important to us or central to us or central to our identity I wanted to do something that sort of showed how what happened when ideas drawn from power and politics entered into people's minds who were feeling very much that they were at the centre of the world and that what they wanted and what they feel was the most important thing. Because in a way, I think that was the dynamic. That's the dynamic of our time is what happens when power meets our feelings. Because in, in the old days, we people tended to listen more respectfully to what they were told by patrician classes like the BBC. These days, it, it, it's a much more complicated interaction. And I just wanted to trace that. But it also allowed me to make a film which was more emotional, or a series of films, more emotional, because I was telling the story of particular people's lives as well. When you transition from social political commentary to what must be due to its focus on the individual, a kind of psychological commentary, what challenges do you face that are, that you haven't previously chased, and how do you how do you frame your arguments differently? Well, to be honest, actually, there's a liberation. I mean, one of the great problems with making films about power and politics in the modern world is that actually there's very little visually happens. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things about our time is that the main things that shape our lives, which are com computers, finance, uh, nothing happens. I mean, it's there's nothing to film, which is why you tend to get documentaries full of reporters gazing at their laptops in cafes um, with voiceovers. When you actually go and do stories about people, you've got something to, you've got something visual, but you've also got a, a, an emotional narrative. And, and I just thought that was really interesting to try and combine that with the sort of stuff I've done about ideas. So it's helpful for narrativization. this initial assumption that we see, thing, see things now through the lens of individualism, that you're interested in what happens when power meets the 
inner life of ordinary people. Um, this, I suppose, sounds to me like uh, internalization, which, like in like the sort of psychology of a family system, you might look at how a child internalizes sort of st- structures and rules. I suppose it seems that you're applying this model at a cultural level, albeit through the means of telling stories about certain individuals in particular cultures, I suppose with the assumption that particularly consumerism and modern democracy requires that the dominant paradigm is that of the individual, that we see ourselves as individuals and regard the world primarily in terms of how we feel about it. So you're talking about how we internalize power structures and what their impact is on the inner life of these individuals or on all of us via these individuals? Well, just to go back to the beginning of your question, the thing that I'm very suspicious about, which I tried not to do in these films, is to what I would call psychologize everyone. Because I think one of the dominant things in the age of the individual, if we want to call it that, is not only that our feelings are the most important thing, but because we are encouraged or we have come to believe that we're at the center of the world, we tend to have come to the assumption that all our feelings, everything we feel inside us comes from inside us or from some terrible experiences we had, like you were saying, when we were a child. I mean, that is obviously true in many cases, but what's been forgotten in our age is the other aspect or the other reason why we feel things, which, which other generations, previous generations did understand, which is what you feel inside you doesn't always just come from inside you. It comes from outside. It comes from where you are in the structure of the power of of a society. And I think that's, I mean, I think it's coming back into focus now, but it's a forgotten thing. It's what old ideas of politics and radical politics used to sort of assume, which is that the reason you feel anxious and uncertain is not because you are a weak individual, not sorry, is not necessarily because you're a weak individual or because something terrible happened to you. It's not necessarily your fault. The reason you may feel weak and uncertain may be because you're living in a society that in itself is weak and uncertain and has no sense of purpose any longer and may be decaying a bit. And that, that, that you're part of something bigger than yourself. I mean, I know it's a thing you and I have talked about in the past is that the forgotten idea of our time is the collective idea. And I'm not being nostalgic. I'm just saying that one of the truths of human life and human society is that we are part of something which is much bigger than just us. But the dominant idea of our time has been that there is nothing much beyond us as individuals, which may be sort of beginning to crack a bit, I feel. I don't know whether it's going to crack in a big way, but but that is cracking. And what's beginning to come back is that that idea is, no, we're part of something. And maybe what we feel is because we're part of something that isn't in a very good shape at the moment. We're buffeting up against the limitations of individualism. We're discovering that there is a limit to how far people or societies can be mobilised by by individualism alone. This idea that there's something with agency operating within our inner psychic spaces could be understood, Adam, could it, as conditioning or programming. Although in the latter part of your last answer, you indicated that it's not so much a kind of mendacious uh, 
manipulative conditioning, but rather a kind of osmosis by which we absorb the entropy and decline of our current culture that's impacting us? Well, it's bigger than that. I mean, it's a sort of truth of a human society. And we've had a society which in many ways was glorious, which is which was led by the idea that you didn't have to be told what to do, that you could actually follow your own instincts, your own feelings, and your own dreams. The, the problem with that is that that's wonderful when things go well. But when things don't go well, you're on your own. And it's it, it can be quite frightening and scary. And I think... One of the, I mean, one of the reasons why I made these series of films is because the thing that has puzzled me is why people feel so anxious and uncertain. I mean, I know that, that we've been hit by a series of catastrophes since 2001, but why no one in power is trying to actually give us any stories about possible alternative futures? Why, and, and that leaves people feeling alone. And when they feel alone, I think a lot of, uncertain, a lot of the uncertainty and anxiety that they feel inside them is possibly because they are part of a society that in itself is feeling uncertain. I'm sorry I'm repeating myself, but I do think I do think this is the sort of forgotten thing of our time. When you say a society, what I would have said perhaps if I had not seen the films that that kind of assumes at its heart a monoculture. Now, in um, your film, you these individuals come from like uh, Chinese culture, from from Russia, from the UK. So, are you saying that, in spite of the sort of superficial and in, you know historic differences between sort of Chinese, Russian, English, American culture, that there can be assumed to be a sort of a universal condition, such as you just described, of alienation and despair? I don't think the re- I don't believe in the universal idea of of, of, of a global society people but what I do think is that different societies are very different and actually they produce very different kinds of people but but there are sort of there is a basic truth which is that you are part of something bigger than yourself uh, and what I think is that we're we're at a funny moment in history I don't know it's, it's a very difficult one because if you look at Russia China and say the West at the moment they appear to be in very different states yeah I mean, most Russia and China are not really what you would call democracies. Um, but there is a sense that all of them have run out of ideas about the future. And it's interesting that the last moment of great big global interconnection was the end of the 19th century. And its decay was led to all sorts of anxieties back then. You were saying that there does f- seem to be a common malaise off the back of this global moment that is compar- comparable to a, a moment at the end of the 19th century, like a, a unifying moment followed by a sort of a sense of breakdown and that it is infecting all of the cultures that you study in this film in spite of Apparent cultural differences. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can't, you can't. They are very different cultures, but the, there is a sort of sense that that those in power, what is the word, are trying to hold an old system stable, and 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 that, and every now and then, over the last twenty years, great big rumbles have come up in all sorts of areas, and it's true in China as well. China is an extraordinarily corrupt society, as not in, in its own way, probably as corrupt as, as Russia. Vast amounts of money are looted and brought to the West. It, it, it's, there's a sense of a lack of meaning and purpose to all those societies. 
um, and a sense of people trying to escape back into strange old dreams of it. You know, Bre we're not alone with Brexit. Putin, from about 2011 onwards, 2012, has been trying to reawaken old mythical dreams of Russia. And, and of course, so, Donald, Trump, Donald Trump was trying to do the same in America. Yeah, people are trying to evoke a golden age as it becomes clear that this idea is dying. Like that, I was, who's that character then? That Mao's wife wasn't it that you used to tell the story of the decline in China, or at least where China are currently? She was um, a woman called Zhang Qing, who used to be a, an actress in um, the 1930s in the studios in Shanghai. And in a way, she's she's an example of what I'm talking about. The culture she came out of was completely different from ours. But she was driven by that same sense of individualism that was emerging. And there was this fascinating moment when she first started, I think it was just after, just before she married Mao Zedong in the 1950s, that they were all hanging out in this in, in the communist. No, it was, sorry, it was before the revolution actually happened. They were out in a camp hiding out in a place called Yunnan. And the communists had this idea that you were all part of a unit. The idea of an individual just corroded the idea of, of communist collectivism. And she stood up at one point and just when she was being attacked and said, no, I am a unit of one. And I just think that sums it up, is, is that there was this other force emerging, even in a society like that, which, because in a way, that's what we all believe these days. We all believe that we are a unit of one, that we are autonomous individuals, self-contained. What we feel comes from within us because it's the most truthful thing. We don't trust the, the, the things we're told increasingly from outside us. And, and that's, but the unit of one has its limitations. It, it, that's that's the, what I was trying to explore in the films. It's... But it's an inevitable thing. You can't put it back in the box, I don't think, individualism. You've said this for a long time. I suppose that if you disengage from, inverted commas, the mystery, if, if a culture, regardless of which of the four you're talking about, becomes ultimately materialistic and interested in forms of commodification, I don't even mean necessarily, and obviously in the cases of China and Russia in terms of uh, capitalist commodification, but still interested in utility, if there is no regard for the mystery, the mystery will reassert. It's interesting that you said that you talk, you're talk, what you're talking about in terms of rhythms and cultural movements that transcend ordinary understanding of uh, you know cultural boundaries um, I, i'm minded to uh, um, cite jung's sort of popular idea of the collective unconscious and indeed of archetypes that there are certain psychic energies that are difficult to understand that are beyond rationale that exist universally if not uniformly and and if we live in a culture that only caters to certain aspects of our nature these shadow aspects will have a, a way of presenting themselves do you, is that something that you considered in your films or that you care about um well, I think, as you know, which is probably why you asked the question, is, no, I don't agree with that. I have a much more banal idea, which is that, really, if you're going to have a globally interdependent economic structure, which we've had for the last 30 years, those societies become intertwined. And I think what's one of the things I trace in the films is how, when China started to build large, massive factories in the late, late 1980s and early 1990s and export cheap goods to the West, they began to enter into a tacit 
very tacit relationship with the finance financial sector in the West, which would lend people money so they could buy those cheap goods. And you've got this sort of circularity going, at which point the societies begin to become not like each other, but they become part of a system which in a way is trying to manage people. Um, and, and that was fine until really 2008 when the global economic crash happened, which also affected China as well. And since then, it's sort of staggered along. And so what I'm trying to say is that the societies are very different, but throughout there, there are sort of similarities of where they're going because of that system they've created. The, so you chose like from, uh, who were they? And things like that. I mean, I think, I think I would argue that part of the problem of our time is what I call the psychologization of everything. Is this idea that somehow you can explain everything by how people feel inside. It's a way of avoiding facing up to questions of power and uncertainty in a society. It's, you know, it, the, the great battle of the 20th century in the West has been between sociology and psychology. You know, it, 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 it's those who want to explain everything internally and those who prefer to pull back and look at how people relate to each other in a society. Of course, the two coexist, but one tends to dominate the other. And over the last 30 years, the psychological explanation of how we feel, where we're going, what's what's happening, has tended to predominate. And I think it's sort of running out of ground. I mean, there's, there's a thing I for doing the last film, which is some of the problems that are now emerging in psychology, that in many of the major experiments that have been done over the last 20 years, which have been there to prove that we can be, what's the word, primed or triggered to be, not, I'm not trying to use the word manipulate, but to be, to be adjusted, to be better people, different people. Nudging is a very good example of it that you, that you, that you get at the moment. I think one of the problems with the psych, what I call the psychologization of us is that it's led to a sense that we are weak. And I think that is one of the reasons why we find any idea of trying to change the world so difficult. And we accept a certain inevitability of what is happening. I know you don't agree with this, uh, but, but I just think that that sort of thing of saying we're linked psychologically is ignoring the other thing is, no, we're also linked socially and we're linked economically and we're also linked by power, which is, the, is you know, the, when the word psychology comes up in a society, the word, word power tends to diminish. How, how do you demonstrate that um, relationship, Adam? In my films, or the relationship between the, two, between the two words? Is that what you mean? Yeah, the dim yes, the diminishing of uh, discussions around power and uh, an advance in discussions around psychology. How do these two ideas interrelate? It doesn't happen. I mean, over the last twenty or thirty years, power as a concept has has sort of faded away. I mean, obviously people talk about it and people use the word power, but the, explana the explanations for why things happen tend to be thrust back onto the individual and their failings, their weaknesses. And, and, and a lot of, I think I try and show in the fourth film how from the 1990s onwards, a lot of politics shifted away from the idea that you change society to the idea that you to make things better you helped individuals change themselves. I mean, it's an, you know, it's an idea that goes back to the radical psychotherapy of the 
late 60s and early 70s, which then really became big in the 90s. But it offered politicians a way of having to, a way of avoiding actually having to deal with social questions. And they, they, they became focused on this idea of how you change people and encouraging people to change. I mean, David Cameron, when he came to power, set up actually specifically in Downing Street, what was called the nudge unit, which the idea was that you would actually have policies and programs that would adjust people, help them psychologically. It's not a bad idea and I'm not criticizing it. What I'm saying is, is that idea of how you change things again came to focus on the individual rather than saying, no, actually, maybe it's society that's the problem. Maybe it's society that's making people feel not very good and feel lonely and uncertain. It's not them. I can see that this is somewhat as a result of what is regarded as the failings of of uh, socialist um, states. When Mark Fisher, who I know you like, and certainly he liked you, writes about like a mental health epidemics and addiction epidemics as evidence of structural and social failings rather than individual failings and kind of a sort of a, almost a disease model, almost a precluding the impact of environment on both of those conditions, uh, those mental health conditions. I can see that that uh, aligns with what you were saying, that society creates our inner life. In fact, almost, I would say, where is this distinction between the inner and outer life? When I draw allusions to sort of materialism, Adam, it's because I'm saying that if we regard reality in terms of what can uh, solely what can be seen and what can be measured, then the natural conclusion that we will reach is that you are an individual, I'm an individual, because that's how things appear to be on the spectra of our senses. It's only by inviting territory that would be regarded as mystical into the conversation, i.e. difficult to measure, difficult to uh, to, to ex- control or experiment with or demonstrate consistently that you can start to present different arguments uh, that of interdependency, interconnectivity, that, that uh, our psychological space is in- affected, of course, socially in ways that can be you know recorded because you could look at one community and what's happened in that community and the mental health impact of certain decisions and uh, in that community. But... Also, I think of, um, you know, Foucault's term, I think, biopolitics, the politics of life, the politics of who gets to live and how they get to live. And what it sounds like you're talking about with Cameron there is almost like the sort of soft end of those ideas, how you subtly manipulate consciousness through these nudges until you have a sort of a although I'm not suggesting it's as uh, malf- suggesting it's as malfeasant as this a malleable and managed culture continually Adam when you and I arrive at this point that there are no new ideas I feel that um it's interesting to question the idea of progressivism itself and consider have we been continually progressing other than the markers of technology and medicine, particular sort of pragmatic disciplines? Has there been a kind of stasis? Has there been a kind of loss? And perhaps the reason that ideas such as the the sort of the arcane myth of a golden age is appealing is because there is a collective sense that time need not only be linear, but cyclical, as it is elsewhere in our environment, if we understand time to behave cyclically. And that 
possibly there are things that can be learned from the arcane world. There are particular ideas that could be re-examined, re-explored and uh, reapplied in a technologically advanced society that we've disregarded uh, throughout our successive global revolutions, particularly agricultural, industrial and technological, which have all, as I would say, advanced this sense of um, like individualism, but also a sort of a loss of agency, paradoxically, within that. Well, my problem with that is that that's all right if you're living a nice life. You know, if you're if you're a nice person eating granola, you're you're and and sort of having enough money to buy expensive coffees. It's fine to then talk about how actually maybe progress doesn't exist and we should just accept the world is cyclical. But then you begin to sound a bit like a conservative, if I might say, because actually, if you're not living a very nice life, um, you, what you do want is things to change for the better. You just do. That's what you want. And that's why progressive political parties grew up in the 19th century to actually try and make the world better. And I just disagree. I just think that, for example, what's amazing in this pandemic is how science has so quickly managed traditional science, not data science, traditional science, which deals with cause and effect, has managed to create vaccines so quickly. And those vaccines will hopefully save millions and millions and millions of people's lives. And that's fantastic. That's wonderful. And, and I just think one of the things I'm charting in these films is what happened to a class that used to run the empire, basically, or their parents used to run the empire when Britain was powerful. And also a class that grew up in the 1960s in America when America was powerful. And, in, and we're talking about the liberal classes here who begin to feel that power is moving away from them, shifting away. And when things go wrong, instead of saying, no, these are really serious problems, but we have the ability and the imagination to deal with it and change it because people have done that in the past. They, they go into what I think in posh words is called bourgeois eschatology. They just say, oh, we're doomed, that's it. You know, the world is gonna to come to an end. And, and there is a sense which I find really sad at the moment that so many people who would say they were progressive actually retreat into a sense that we are doomed rather than saying, no, human beings have made extraordinary steps in the past. And there are so many people who are hurting at the moment, having a really bad time, and we should actually try and make it better. I mean, the vote for Brexit was not, not a thing that I agreed with, but I recognise why so many people did it. Because they had been living for 20 or 30 years in a system in which both political parties did nothing really to help them. And they were given an opportunity to protest against that. And I'm not saying this is what everyone, everyone who voted for it was like this, because I know there were all sorts of people. But there is a mood in this country, in America, in Russia, which really wants change. And they are people who, if you said to them, no, things are just cyclical and we've been worrying about progress too long, it would be rather insulting because we've got the benefits of progress. And it's almost like you want to pull up the drawbridge and say, that's it. And, and whilst there are really, really serious problems and complexities, sometimes things are, I, I, in, the, in the, um, uh, the films I sent you, I didn't have, I put a quote at the front of the films now from a guy I really admired who was an activist and an anthropologist called David Graeber, um, who sadly died last year. 
And I put a quote, which, I, which he wrote once, which I just think is, sums up everything I believe, which it just simply said, the great, un, what's it, the, great tr the great hidden truth of the world is that we made this and we can make it different again. No, we can, we can just as easily make it different again. It, that's what I believe in. I believe that you can change the world because we've done it before. Whereas where we are now at the moment is a great feeling that, no, we can't change the world. It's just too complicated. It, 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 it's going to go backwards. And, and we just have to, a sense of inevitability. But, but that's sort of ignoring the fact that what Graeber's trying to get at is we made this. We did it. Whether it's good or bad, we did it. It didn't just happen. We can do it again. We can make it better if we have the confidence to do it. And what I'm trying to trace in the, all the films is all the different currents that have led to the eating away of that confidence, eating away of that, of that certainty that human beings can. They will make mistakes and they will stumble, but they can change the world because they've done it. You know, the world we live in is a world that was changed completely over the last hundred years. With some horrors, that's true, but also with extraordinary things like the science that now makes the vaccine. That's my little rant. What I mean by a progressivism there, Adam, is that whilst there has been observable progress in the specific areas you cite, there has been stagnation and an emergent, I would sort of say an extremist conservatism precisely from the liberal class that you seem to be suggesting could be uh, are obligated and could potentially provide salvation and when I refer to cyclicalism which I often do and that's why I can pronounce it so well what I mean is a reverence for ideas that precede civilization the vast portions of our conscious life that are beyond the very type of condition that you are citing. Far from uh, insulting people that are suffering, I sense and am determined that their suffering ought be the focus and fulcrum for radical change. And part of that radicalism will be the, not necessarily the disempowerment of the class of people that you describe and have made the subject of a portion of your latest series of films, but that they are no longer turned to. The thing that appeals to me about populism, and I mean the populism of, if I had to pick a side, I would be saying the left rather than the right, is precisely that it is a return to a kind of folk identity, a return to the empowerment of ordinary people. And to your point about Graeber's quote, is rather than turning to a patrician or parental class to provide, inverted commas, us with solutions as they did so nobly before with colonialism and the, the various uh, great ideas and themes that followed it, that power itself is addressed head on, that power is approached differently, which of course I recognise does have recourse to some uh, of these ideas of the recent past, you know, and even there's even, may I say in Graeber's quote, a sense of cyclicism, cyclicalism, we made it great, we can make it again, that could be regarded as progress or it could be regarded as once again connecting with the values that have evidently been discarded for us to arrive in this uh, emergent dystopia. So I suppose what I'm saying is that I recognise that there are ideas left perhaps in sort of 
liberalism or what immediately preceded it, particularly in terms of sort of regulation and certainly in terms of having a vision. It's just that, that I suppose a personal experience is, you know, once when I was invited to participate in a billionaire's island conference, which was, you know, let's all, how are we going to club together and help people, which, you know, happened to take place on a, a tax haven. I felt the visceral sense, Adam, the visceral sense that that, is not the direction we should be looking to for solutions because embedded in that direction is the problem. The reason these problems continue to abide is because of the, uh, as you described in the conditions that led to say Trump and Brexit, is because of their uh, apathy and uh, and I would argue conservatism in a, in a literal sense rather than a political sense that we arrived at this point because of their abandonment of the, the very people that you now say would be um, offended by the idea that, that, that truly radical ideas need to be embraced and they may not lay in the hands of these liberal classes. No, I mean, that's the really interesting thing of our time is that, that over the last, what, 50 years, that patrician class has always assumed that the, the working class liked them because they, they had a benign paternalistic attitude to them. And the shock of Brexit and Trump was that they were suddenly revealed that they didn't care for them any longer. And it really, that was, that shock still reverberates. You, you can feel it. And a lot of people I know were saying about the people who voted for Brexit, oh, they're just stupid, which I was really shocked by. And again, going back to the 19th century, I was reading a really fascinating history book the other day, which, which, which argued that really up until um, after, just after the First World War, the upper middle classes really were frightened of mass democracy. They didn't want it at all. It was only after the communist revolution and the threat of a global communist revolution in 1917 that democracy, mass democracy, became this alternative. It was, it was, it was, the, it was the better one than, than having a communist world. And it is very interesting that once communism collapsed in 1992, is that you begin to get almost immediately people writing, um, uh, political thinkers in America especially, arguing that really maybe democracy is dangerous. You know, w w there's a wonderful man called Farid Zakaria who writes about, where I, I found this quote the other day where he says, um, we're always told that the people, uh, the, 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 you have to trust the people. What if you can't? What if the people are actually stupid? And, 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 the, and you, 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 throughout the 1990s, you have this idea rising up because suddenly you get people in Europe voting for neo-Nazi parties. And then you get people in Bosnia behaving in really strange ways. And, you, and they begin not to trust the people. And I think the mood of anger amongst those who hated Brexit, hated Trump and hated Dominic Cummings is a sort of final bursting out of that thing that's been underground throughout the 1990s is that you can't trust them any longer, these working classes. And I, I just wonder whether there's some strange big realignment going on in the West, in America and in Britain, where the, the middle classes are detaching from the working classes. And if you look at our, our political system at the moment, what you've actually got is a conservative party that's becoming the party of the working class. I mean, I don't know whether that'll last, but that's what happened at the last election. And that's what, I mean, that's why Cummings was so, he saw it in the Northeast in the late 90s. He saw that disenchantment. And that's what he pushed. 
and that's what he's got. Whether it'll survive or not, but 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 what I'm saying is it's not just about voting patterns and 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 sort of utilitarian attitudes to the working class. The, amongst the middle classes, there is a growing disenchantment with them because of and Brexit and Trump were just the biggest expression of that. Is that is that mass democracy is dangerous, can be dangerous. We don't like it because they'll want things that we don't like. And, and I just wonder whether there's some great big social change going on, but because we're so preoccupied by going shopping, we don't really notice it. Well, it seems to me that that's exactly what you're suggesting. And I would say that what preceded um, Brexit and Trump by some 30 years from, you know, sort of Clinton certainly onwards was a kind of contempt and even you know it's you that sort of told me that much of the rise of thatcher could be attributed to a kind of plucky sort of boisterous emergent kind of working class attitude and look what i am feeling and when i talk about a return like when i talk about arcane values adam i'm i don't feel that we will be saved by further bureaucracy i don't feel that the systems that are in place or any kind of um what do i want to say iteration of them is going to provide a solution any uh, combination of uh, the m- m- mainstream media the state big business and the way that they manage and control stories and the public imagination I, I like because of the kind of media that i currently consume i feel this disenchantment i feel i i feel and am experiencing uh the anger and as i agree with your diagnosis that they are right to be angry but of course like i'm you know i'm certain that you would agree that neither trump nor brexit are going to address those problems and certainly no repackaged sort of populist conservative party will and it seemed like there was a moment that a a different type of populism might emerge you know post 2001 with syriza and podemos in, in in european politics for a moment but that perhaps that presents a greater threat than kind of what could be referred to as alt-right or ethno-nationalist right-wing populism because it could genuinely engage a huge number of people. I myself sense a huge demographic that are not being catered for, that do not trust the media, do not trust the government and actually aren't particularly interested in Brexit and Trump. They just want their, their emotional quality of their life to alter and I think there's a they need encouragement. There is a sort of a starvation of the spirit that's happening. This is why I'm interested in... I know you ain't like that because, I don't know, you're atheistic, you're journalistic. There's a lot of sticks involved. But, like, I th- I wonder where we will find this resource. I wonder where we will evoke this power. Furthermore, I'd like to point out about one of your films where you said it was the role of uh, the powerful to be somewhat uh, directive and you i think used the example of sort of capital punishment that you know which would is you know, to some degree of kind of a popular idea that people were guided away from and even sort of civil rights type changes so i wondered how that's at odds with um, what you're currently saying or if it belongs to a different if not epoch certainly time no it does i mean that i think that was a short film i made for charlie brooker about roy that lot that Labour politician yeah. Roy Jenkins. Yes, they they did extraordinary things. I mean, that's the point I was trying to make is that that was an old idea of patrician politics that you could take the people with you if you had a great idea of the kind of things you wanted to do. And Jenkins, from what I remember, 
fought. He stood up against the Daily Mail, basically. He 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 got rid of hanging. He legalized homosexuality. He 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 and he did it in the teeth of opposition. What you have now is a political class who wouldn't do that. They wouldn't. They just wouldn't. And I think that's not only because they are cowardly. Um, it's because they actually have run out of ideas of what they would do. They, they just don't know how, how to solve these problems. And what they are, what they're waiting for is someone who does actually have an idea. And I, and I think unless we, someone gets on with it, you're going to actually get other forces that are not very nice coming up with solutions to it. Um, with old dreams of the past, um, although they're dying now. I mean, the, the, the fear of the right in the, the extreme right in Europe seems to be diminishing. I mean, it's really like we're waiting for a set of new ideas. And, and, and I think why all those, you point to Podemos and, and, and I would also argue Occupy Movement, but also Donald Trump. I would argue that in a way, they're all the same. They're, they're all evidence of, of eruptions of a, of a pressure building up from underneath. Yeah. But, but, but those who try and lead them or guide them or benefit from them don't actually have a sort of way of dramatizing imaginatively what you can do with that energy. What they do is they sort of start talking in managerial terms about how they can make things a little bit better. And it's always reduced down to that, to a sort of an almost HR version of the world that will just get rid of the bad people. You know, we'll get rid of the racists or we'll get rid of the horrible uh, Harvey Weinsteins. They're not going to address the, the social and economic system that makes people behave like Harvey Weinstein, that actually allows a system of film funding in Los Angeles to be structured in such a way that actually horrible men like him can brutally abuse young women. It's, 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 the system is never addressed. It's, it's a bit like in my own organization, the BBC, if you behave badly, I mean, this wouldn't happen these days, but you, you, you're, you'll clear your desk by five o'clock and you're out. And then everyone goes, well, that's all right. Uh, the system goes back to normal. And, and in a way, I always think the internet has become a bit like a giant HR system. It's when anyone ever behaves badly online in one of the echo chambers, it behaves like a giant HR department that, you know, they clear their desk by five o'clock and they're out. And, and, and everyone goes, Phew, got rid of them then. And the system doesn't change. And it just goes round and round and round. That's interesting. What you're waiting for is, 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 is someone who wasn't trained in HR, who was actually trained to think imaginatively. Yes, the role of the artist and the shaman and the mystic. It's interesting. There is no counterpoint to this individualism. So when it comes to attributing blame, you you can only blame the individual. And also because the system is a conservative, particularly in some of the systems you listed there, their, their preservation and and the, uh, of the preservation of their economic imperatives is a priority. And even their sort of personal reputation, a priority above any kind of actual moral or ethical solution, because uh, the problem, it seems like, is power is concentrated in the hands of institutions and individuals that benefit from stasis rather than real progress or real change. Now, another thing, mate, that sort of struck me is that how come I can sort of like put on Fox News and watch Tucker Carlson talking about Robin Hood and GameStop enthusiastically, then get Glenn Greenwald on there and like talk about how like sort of Biden and Hunter Biden isn't being covered correctly and sit and watch Fox News without disagreeing with anything they're saying for 20 minutes. What's going on? When these kind of like the when these kind of what was formerly understood to be kind of 
you know, these territorial lines are blurring. What's happening? People are getting angry with some of the hypocrisy of the time. And, and it does cross over boundaries, doesn't it? Yeah, it also is further suggestion that there might be an emergent demographic that's available not to politics as we've previously understood it. There's always an emergent demographic available to politics. It depends what story you're going to tell. I mean, to, to be brutal, you're talking like an HR manager now. What do you mean by that? Well, you just talked about an emergent demographic available to radical politics. I didn't actually hear an idea in there of the society you wanted to build, Russell. I've already told you about my anarcho-syndicalism with some state regulation on centralised powers that it can initially emerge and then a confederacy where people are free to establish their own ideals and rules. If you want to be a gun-toting liber uh, libertarian, you go for it in your community of gun-toting libertarians. If you want to be uh, an anarchist, um, pansexual, doing your thing wherever you want to do it, you can do it. The di Like the dissolution of state, the dissolution of centralised power, real democracy for real people wherever they are in the world a pan-global trans-denominational confederacy you create your reality you create your culture they're lying to you and they're laughing at you and we will liberate you from them rather you will liberate you from them by non-participation don't pay your mortgage don't pay your taxes join us on the front lines there is an argument that actually in real individualism hasn't happened yet and that what we're living through at this present moment is, how would you describe it? The growing pains of an individualism that is hampered by the old ghosts of the past. In our country, the empire, in America, the racism for, from, from back from slavery, and it's holding it all back. And that, that real individualism hasn't been tried yet. The sort of thing you're talking about. And that, I mean, in practical terms, the first step would be to, because I mean, the thing you've got to square with this is that what you're talking about is an individualism that isn't going to go back into the box, yet somehow can have collective power at the same time. It, it, no one's ever managed to get that yet. In the old days of, 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 of socialist and, and, and left-wing politics, you gave yourself up to a collective action. You're not going to be able to get people to do that now. Because people, you know, you're an arch individualist yourself. You're one of the great expressions of it. You know that. You say this to me sometimes and I'm, I find it very wounding. You know that you are an arch individualist. What you also want to do, you want to be, feel part of something that is going to go on beyond your, your own existence and beyond your own life, but still but doesn't, doesn't make you give yourself up to it completely. And there is an argument that that's what the internet could be. But in, in 2000, with the dot-com bubble, it got stolen by basically venture capital that took over a number of companies and skewed them to a very narrow focus on advertising. And that that's where we are with Google. And that the, the, the real solution to the, to the emergence of proper individualism is to get that internet back, take it back, and use it as a a system that at the same, uh, allows people to feel they are individuals, but at the same time feel they are part of something beyond themselves, bigger. And that it's waiting to be done. Uh, that, that, that's the practical thing. Because the problem with your argument is, yes, you can have your anarcho pods outside in the mountains outside Barcelona, but, but how do you collectively come together to have power to challenge real vested interests? How do you do it? And, and no one's really worked that out yet. 
But we've got to work it out now, Adam. We can't, we can't just go on going round and round in circles. And I will concur with your suggestion that that, you know, that that perhaps it could begin with a, an online revolution and the reclamation of these spaces that ended up being colonised the way that all space is colonised by people with the resourcing, resources to enact that colonisation, that what started as an open territory where people could, yes, express myriad iterations of the individual became a conformist hegemonic space that it, the same the same uh, paradigm could be exercised there as was has been exercised in physical spaces has been exercised over physical resources and perhaps you're right that's a way to start because it's certainly a way to create non-physical communities but one of the things that concerns me as well is like is as you have point alluded to and, and explicitly said that these um, technocracies that present us as primarily that, that our role in life is to manage our own individualism to marry manage our own bodies and I my belief in transcendence my belief in the universal is paradoxically both individualistic and I would say uh, collectivist in so much as I believe that whilst we are unique and individual expressions of a whole, we are connected. We are one. It's a religious view, I suppose, a hopefully non-dogmatic, certainly non-judgmental, certainly not prescriptive religious idea that embraces the sanctity of the individual. Now, you're right. It's possible now to communicate globally an appealing idea in my senses that there are a significant number of people that will be attracted to that idea. The idea of declaring yourself liberated, a kind of global manumission from the tyranny of our uh, various owners or at least the owners of the ter inner spaces and cyberspaces. So that's, that, that's a nice little starting point, isn't it, Adam? I've always liked the fact that you like religion. Um, it, 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 it's sort of, because I do think actually a lot of these, are, I mean, socialism in this country came out of religion. It came out of Methodism. And, and, and that sense of being able to, I've always, un I've always understood religion as its real attraction is that it offers individuals consolation in the face of their own death, their own mortality. That, that there is something beyond just you. It will go on that you're part of something. That's an incredibly attractive thing to people. And I, I've always thought what's really interesting about a lot of the um, what are called rationalists that have risen up over the last 10, 15 years is that they're sort of scared of religion. And they're scared of religion because it does have that power. Uh, I'm not religious myself, but I can see it. I, I, I get it because it, it does offer you something. And I do think that if there is going to be some new, I, I, you, you might not even be politics, something, it will borrow from that idea of religion. It's a, it's, it's a really powerful idea because it means that, you, you know, people in the Victorian era, the one thing people talked about a lot about was death, but what they didn't talk about was sex. These days, we talk all about sex, and the one thing we don't talk about is death. That's why we also find the pandemic so frightening. And, and I think that it, it, it is the sort of the thing that no one talks about, yet everyone is terrified of, and that there is nothing that offers consolation in the modern world for that. Religion in its organised form certainly doesn't at all. And I think that maybe the politics of the future is going to have to embrace that kind of recognition that people's, those grander feelings 
of separateness and aloneness are really important, really powerful. And you're going to have to answer them if you're going to change the world. Yeah. Because you see, the point is what, what we try to do. Remember, if you're going to put this in a big historical terms, is that the reason we gave up on big ideas in the West is because big ideas were seen to have led to horror, not seen mm -hmm. to lead to horror. They did lead to horror communism, yeah. fascism, all kinds of totalitarianism. So we said, we're not going to do big ideas any longer. And what we did is we substituted, not just individualism, we substituted money. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. We used money as a, as a way of a means of communication. The marketplace became this really big way of how we talk to each other. And, and that was really good because it led to that, you know, self-expression through consumerism, hyper-consumerism of the 80s and the 90s. But when you actually run a society through the medium of money, what you give up on is, is it becomes very utilitarian. Everything is measured yes. in terms of money. Which is, and I'm not, I'm not doing the normal thing about, oh, money being bad. What I'm saying is that it narrows your options for how you think about the world. Because if you think about the world in utilitarian terms, you're sort of on your own. It's what you do, what you get, and then you die. And, and I think a lot of people find that underneath quite difficult. Yes, and untrue. You're, the lens that you're applying to religion, may I say, is a sort of a, a rationalist uh, 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 and pragmatic and utilitarian lens to apply to religion. Like you'll say, oh, it's a consolation for death. But also what it is, is a portal to that which is unknowable as an individual. The, it's, an expression. it's an expression. Look, uh, you're quite right. I am being a rationalist and I am, I'm not being utilitarian. What, what Yes, you are. It's an expression of everything we don't know. That's it. it it's, an it's an imaginative attempt to express yeah, everything yeah. we don't know. But even that is reductive because you, you, it, it, within that, Adam, I may say, is the assumption that there is no veracity in it. And what I am offering you is that religion and its universal expression, and I know this is an idea that you'll think of as rather passe, uh, perennialistically expresses this truth. When in religion, e.g. Christianity, we talk about die unto yourself, that is not unrelated to the horror and certainty of this great contemporary taboo of individual death, that looming spectre that our current philosophy cannot ever tackle or even acknowledge. If you die unto yourself, then if you can become living dead, if you can observe your individual identity, first by observing your thoughts, then by observing your feelings and recognize that you are in fact the awareness that observes the body, the awareness that observes a thought, that you are still present even so. If through psychedelic experience you access within the confines of your own body and your own mind, consciousness, experience that is beyond reason, that is beyond your senses. If through breath work and meditation you access psychic planes that are as real as this one, but that are never utilised other than, as in, you know, as we've talked about before, like with the uh, Wachowski sisters, create new imaginative realms, born of imagination. We can dream new worlds. You know, where are these worlds going to come from? They're going to come from the mystical experience, whether that's through, you know, scientific genius or artistic genius or religious genius, 
through the ability to recognise that, no, you're not just a bag with some organs in it and some thoughts in it being shuffled about by whatever dominator culture happens to be holding onto the steering wheel in the short time that you are alive. You are a portal to the limitless. You can access this through yourself. You can have a real lived experience of God. In fact, your experience of life is God that you have forgotten how to access because you have been acculturated and attuned to the mundial only. You have lost your legacy, your legacy of the infinite. Now, Adam, I don't know whether that makes actual sense, but I reckon you could get people banging on a few palace gates off the back of it and storming a few Silicon Valley campuses. And isn't that, after all, at least part of our objective? It seemed to me a bit retro. If I was, if I had to be blunt. Well, you were just not getting on your knees to suck off Roy Jenkins 20 minutes ago. So don't accuse me of being retro with my magnificent new psychic planes. And you haven't even seen my trousers. What I wanted to, what I was going to say was that it, it the really interesting, the, the real problem with the utilitarian time is it stops the idea that actually you, you can make the world the way you want it. What, it, what, you, what a utilitarian society brings with it is a sense of inevitability, that it just says, this is it. Um, and, and that's sort of the, 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 the dominant mood of our time over the last 20 years is a sense that, well, this is it. And we wait for the next thing to come along. What, what's disappeared is imagination. Now, you've just, you've, you've, what you've just described is a certain type of imagination which is based in a kind of mysticism. What I'm really saying is we don't know. We have no idea what the next thing will be. And I find that really exciting. That's what I find exciting. That, that, that actually what's extraordinary about human beings, and this is a very, very, this is an area which we almost socially we're not allowed to talk about because it goes back to the, 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 the ideas of the late 19th century, out of which came all sorts of really strange and frightening things. But it, 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 it sort of is there, is that human beings have this sort of ability to imagine all kinds of things and then make them happen. What then happens doesn't necessarily turn out to be the way they want it to be. But what I'm really saying is that rather than trying to prescribe to me a certain type of mysticism, I like the idea of just having a politics which says, no, we can imagine all kinds of things. We can actually do that because that's the thing that we're not in a way that's the heart of our society is we don't imagine anything at the moment other than other than a dystopia other than frightenedness of the future and 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 i think that's well i think we'll look back at this age as a very yeah a utilitarian one it's a bit like you look back at those dickens novels where i think he was called mr gradgrind who would measure everything we measure everything Everything is measured, and that's what by bringing money into the centre of society, money becomes the measure of everything, and that becomes a very simplified, rationalised, utilitarian thing, which at the moment has sort of, ever since 2008, has cracked. But because we lacked, we, we, were, we were moved away from the sphere of imagination, we have no idea of how to get out of it at the moment. And we're waiting for some work of imagination to come back in. I have no idea where it's going to come from. I used to think it was going to come out of climate politics, but I don't think it is. I just don't know where it is. I mean, about out of nature. I, I don't know. And none of us do know. It'll be it'll be somewhere we can't see it. Because we're, there, there is just a sort of, there's such a vacuum. 
that something could sweep in. Yes. It might not. Yes. We might be in this for the long run. You know, it, 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 it's sort of, this might be the moment. I, I was reading about how the English, the British Empire uh, went through two stages. One, it was, it was about to collapse and then it just had another wave. And I just wonder whether the American Empire is going to be like that. What was the, what, what other wave did it have? Well, we had the thing called, what was called the informal empire, where what Commonwealth or? our companies used to go and run things like the East oh. India Company. And then, then um, those we ruled over started to rise up and it all got a bit dodgy, at which point we started what was called formal imperialism, where the army and the navy used to go in and sort things out. I think it was- We're called- serious about this tea. We're, we're actually are going to have it. This is our tea. No, we'll kill you. Yeah. And, and I, you know, you could look at America at the same, that, that it's going from informal, when its corporations went, went around the country, come, went around the world, mm. organising things. And now um, it's sort of going through its formal birth pangs. But that may be wrong. No, but history doesn't repeat itself. What I'm really saying is, is that we have no idea what the future is. But what in that vacuum, and because our own, all our imaginations allow us to do, is to have dark, dystopian visions. Yes. And, and the, I find the question of why that is very interesting. It's sort of, it's, we've become very limited in our vision of the future at the moment. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin with Adam Curtis. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Russell Rockets, hashtag Under the Skin. Join, in a little word, my community at RussellBrand.com <laughs> to gain exclusive news and video content. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this conversation with Philippa. I know, I just remembered. What did you remember? That that was the typo. I was gonna... Firstly, the word join, my community, is very little. <laughs> Bear, don't do that. Lay down. And uh, sorry about that. I was talking to a dog. Uh, and uh, and uh, anyhow, also, obviously, it was Adam Curtis, yeah. not Philippa Parrish, as week before. So, so hold on a minute. You're not writing from scratch a new document every week. That would be odd. It's very lazy, Jen. Very lazy indeed. Templates is how working life In fact, is. I've got a comment from that. Is your <laughs> co-worker, Jenny, rather a lazy person? Well, in answer to that question... Dusty Phillips again, that is. Thank you, Dusty, for keep communicating. She, yes, she is. She's the laziest of our team members. Oh. Keep checking my YouTube channel daily for new videos. And if you like that Adam Curtis one, why don't you listen to Jason Hickel, who it says here in brackets was an economist. I remember him being very good. And Douglas Rushkoff. Brilliant. You liked him, didn't you, Jim? Yeah. How do you describe him? Calm. No. No, definitely not. How? Very energetic. Energised. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining me on Under the Skin. And we'll be having the second half of that conversation with Adam next week. It's going to be where we talk about, we get more into American politics, contemporary politics. And I finally put forward some ideas of how we could radically reorganize society, which is surely what you've all been waiting for. Thanks for joining me on Under the Skin, only from Luminary. <laughs>